You're listening to audio from Cities Church. You can find more resources and learn about our ministry by visiting citieschurch.com. Just north of us, along Snelling Avenue, is an area known as Midway. As many of you may know, may drive through it often, gets its name from its location about midway between Minneapolis and St. Paul. Minneapolis, about three miles west, St. Paul, about three miles east. And according to visitstpaul.com, which you may not need to go to because you live the reality, the key midway intersection of University Avenue and Snelling Avenue is one of the busiest in all of the Twin Cities. Some of you may have experienced that this morning. And it says, a far cry from a century and a half ago when the area was a giant prairie between Minneapolis and St. Paul. I mentioned Midway because we have come to the Midway point in the letter to the Hebrews. Chapter 8, verses 1 to 2, is the seam that runs down the middle of the book of Hebrews. It is the halfway point. Very distinctly so. Now chapter 1 is about three miles behind us, and chapter 13 is about three miles ahead. And so this may be a good time to say something more about the structure of the book of Hebrews than we have to this point. I've really been looking forward to doing this. It's one of the reasons I wanted chapter 8, to talk about the structure. So let's start right where we are in chapter 8, verses 1 to 2, and then let's move out to get a sense of the structure. It's very symmetrical. It's centered in the middle. It's concentric. And so let me say a few words here at the beginning about the structure of the book of Hebrews. The heart of the letter is chapters 5 to 10. It's right in the middle, chapters 5 to 10. And these chapters focus on the person of Jesus and then his work, who he is as a high priest, and then what he does as high priest. So chapters 5 to 7, as we've seen, make the case for Jesus as our great high priest. He is not a priest in the Levitical line under the the terms of the first covenant. Rather, he is a priest of a different kind, a different order. He's a king priest in a way that was outlawed in the old covenant. He's a king priest like that enigmatic king priest figure in Genesis 14 named Melchizedek. And so chapters 5 to 7, Jesus is our climactic, final, great high priest, which the old covenant system pointed to and anticipated. Now he's come. And so before moving on, Hebrews wants us to feel the import of this, what he's just done in 5 to 7 about Jesus as high priest. He wants to make sure we're clear. So chapter 8, verse 1, and I love it when authors do this, when preachers do this. Make sure you know where we're at, orient in the spot, make sure you got the point. Chapter 8, verse 1, now the point in what we're saying is this, thank you. We want to know the point. What's the point of chapters 5 to 7? Here's the point. We have such a high priest. It's not just theory. This is not speculation. This is not a future hope or promise. We have him right now. We have him. 
You got it? Five to seven, Jesus is the great high priest who we have now, seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places. So not only is identity, person, not only is Jesus a new kind of priest, but a priest must have some work, some ministry to do. That's chapters 8 to 10 on the other side of our little midway point here. Jesus' work as high priest. So there's the heart of Hebrews in the middle, chapters 5 to 10, with 8, 1 and 2, as the middle, as the seam. And then standing guard around the middle of the letter, chapters 5 to 10, are these two amazing exhortation sections that mirror each other and develop each other. Very distinct. You want a Bible study this week? Take chapter 4, 14 to 16 and put it on paper right next to chapter 10, verses 19 to 23. Amazing sentinels that stand guard on the front and back of the heart of Hebrews in chapters 5 to 10. Both passages, so, 10, so 4, 14 to 16, and 10, 19 to 23, both passages say, like 8.1, we have a great high priest. And both passages name him as Jesus. And they say he has passed through the heavens or through the curtain into the very presence of God. And both give us this double exhortation to hold fast our confession. So don't backtrack, don't drift, hold fast. And let us draw near with confidence. So there's a forward movement too. It's not just standing still. Don't go back, draw near. So now still working outward here from 8-1, 5 to 10, still working outward. Now we're going 3-1 and 12-1 to 3. It's the similar exhortation to consider Jesus. This, this now adds and clarifies these sentinel exhortations in chapters 4 and 10. Consider Jesus, meaning, it's very similar to what Clint had to say a few minutes ago about ex, I mean the exhortation. Look to him deeply. Engage the mind. The language is, is relates to the mind and depth. So go deep with your mind in Jesus. Look to him. Attend to him. Meditate on him. Don't ignore him or forget him or drift from him, but remember him. Ponder him deeply. Contemplate him. That'd be a good synonym for it. Contemplate him. And in doing so, you will hold fast to your faith in Him, He's the object of the faith, and you will draw near to Him. Between the exhortations to consider Jesus in 3.1, I'll do it backwards for you, right? 3.1 and 12.1 to 3, there are these exemplary sections of negative example in chapters 3 to 4. That's the wilderness generation. It's a negative example of unbelief. They started in faith, they did not endure. Negative example. Positive examples over here, chapter 11. The litany of saints, the honor roll of pre-Christian saints who persevered in faith, culminating in Jesus himself. Chapters 1 to 2 then, kind of an extended introduction, you could call it, which doesn't make it any less important. Chapters 1 and 2 talk about the exaltation of Jesus to God's right hand, the incarnation of Christ, leading up to that first charge to consider Jesus in 
And then chapters 12 to 13, in many ways, is a kind of extended conclusion. It's following the high point of Jesus as the grand finale of the honor roll of faith in chapter 11. So here's the summary. Chapter 1 and 2, introduction, Jesus exalted, incarnate, reigning. Chapter 3, verse 1, look to Jesus, consider Him, contemplate Him. Then chapters 3 and 4, negative example of unbelief, the wilderness generation. Then 4, 14 to 16, we have a great high priest, hold fast to Him, draw near to Him. Chapters 5 to 7, now I move to the heart, 5 to 7, who Jesus is as the true priest. 8, 1 to 2, midway. Now the point in what we're saying is this, chapters 9 to 10, what Jesus does as the true sacrifice. 10, 19 to 23, we have a great high priest, hold fast to him, draw near to him. Chapter 11, positive examples of faith from Abel to Jesus. 12, 1 to 3, consider Jesus, look to him, contemplate him. And then finally, 12, 13, extended conclusion. The message of Hebrews again and again is that Christian faith perseveres as we look to Jesus. As the patterns of our lives and the gaze of our souls returns again and again to contemplate Jesus, see Him, adore Him, worship Him, we draw near to Him, and so we hold fast to Him and our faith in Him perseveres. It's the message of Hebrews. So having established Jesus as the superior high priest in chapter 7 and made His transition in chapter 8 verses 1 and 2 to Christ's work, chapters 10 to 13, 10 to, chapters 8 to 10, we turn now to verses 3 to 6 of Hebrews 8. And here we see three more superiorities that relate to our superior priest. That's the outline for the rest of our time. Three superiorities in verses 3 to 6 of chapter 8. Number one, Jesus serves in a superior place. This is verses 4 to 5. He serves in a superior place. Verse 2 introduced the notion of place. Jesus is now in heaven, and He is a minister in the holy places, in the true tent, which the Lord set up, not man. Verses 4 and 5 then expand on this location. Look at verses 4 and 5. Now, if Jesus were on earth, He would not be a priest at all, since there are priests on earth who offer gifts according to the law. It's the Old Covenant. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown to you on the mountain. Now that last part of verse 5 is quoting from Exodus 25. Some of you have been with us long enough to remember the Exodus series not too long ago. Chapter 25, after they've come out of the promised land, God's giving them the covenant, He's giving them instructions for the tabernacle. And Moses and the people are to go about constructing this old covenant tabernacle to go with them in the wilderness, the tent. 
And they're not just to design it as they see fit. And even this, God doesn't just make it up in the moment ad hoc. Rather, God shows Moses a pattern. He gives him a pattern to follow, which means that this tabernacle isn't the original. It's based on something else, as we saw then and in Leviticus. The earthly tabernacle was patterned after the original place of God's presence, namely heaven itself, the true tabernacle. And so, according to Exodus 25, the holy place of the Old Covenant was not the original and not the final holy place. The tabernacle is, says Hebrews, a copy and shadow. And now, the risen Christ has ascended into heaven itself, the superior place, and sat down at the right hand of majesty. And unless we assume, as we often do in the modern world, that really the superior place must be down here. I mean, this world with all its sights and its sounds and smells and tastes and pleasures. Heaven, that's the shadowy, ethereal, bland place. Lest we assume that, as we're prone to do in the modern world. Hebrews confronts us with another way of thinking. Get this. Jesus is not less effective for us because he's in heaven. He is more effective for us because he's in heaven. It is to your advantage that I go away, he says. And this, the implications of this for us is not that we would think any less of the realness of our world, but that we would reckon all the more with the realness and the authority of heaven, where Jesus is more real than your problems and your anxieties and the obstacles in your life. Heaven is far more real in the very presence of God than this fallen world with its many glories and sorrows. Heaven is the superior place where our superior high priest ministers for us right now. And a day is coming when he will bring the superior place with him when he comes back and remake this world into a new heavens and new earth. So number one, Jesus serves in the superior place. Number two, Jesus makes the superior offering. It's verse three. Jesus makes the superior offering. There's a hint of this at the end of chapter seven, verse 27. We see there that once for all, he offered up himself. That's huge. That's chapters 8 to 10, expanding on that. And now verse 3 picks up on that hint and says, Every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it is necessary for this priest, Jesus, to have something to offer. Now remember. 
Chapters 5 to 7, his priesthood. Chapters 8 to 10, his offering. And verse 3 is the beginning of the focus of the offering. That's what we're going to be doing in May. May is focus on the offering of Christ in chapters 8 and 9 and 10. So what do priests do? Well, they make offerings and sacrifices. So it is a question for the kids. Kids, still with us, there's a chance to come back. If someone is appointed a fireman, what do we expect for them to do? Put out fires. And if someone becomes a mailman, what should they do? Deliver the mail. And so when Jesus is exalted, in the words of Psalm 110, to the position of high priest, what should we expect him to do? Have something to offer. High priest is not an honorific title. There is work to be done by the priest. Now, in the old covenant, the work of the priests was endless. They had to offer sacrifices daily, first for their own sins, also for the sins of the people. With each new dawn, more sacrifices awaited. The work never finished. And so too, throughout the day, priests are always on their feet. And with all the furniture that we hear about in Exodus for the tabernacle, you know what's missing from the furniture? Chairs. No place to sit down. The work's never done. The priests stand. They move. They do the next offering. But now, Christ has come as the true priest of a new order. And since he's a priest, we ask, well, what does he offer? What's his work? What's his sacrifice? And chapters 9 to 10 will have much to say about the offering. It will be a glorious place to focus in the coming weeks. And next week, we'll look at the second half of chapter 8, which is the longest Old Testament quotation in the New Testament from Jeremiah 31. And chapters 9 and 10 then will expand on Christ as the superior and final sacrifice. And we'll learn more about the Old Covenant place and offerings, plural, in chapter 9, in contrast with the New Covenant place and offering single. Which leads to one last superiority of Christ over all that came before. So he serves in a superior place, he makes a superior offering, and third, Jesus mediates a superior covenant. This is verse 6. He mediates a superior covenant. Look with me at verse 6. But now, so in contrast to the past, now Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent as the old than the covenant, much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. Enacted, ordained, formally founded by law, put in place. 
And so, if we want to know how much better is Jesus' new covenant than the old one that came before, it might be helpful to put the two side by side. In some sense, the whole of Hebrews is doing this. Hebrews is just contrasting old and new, old and new, again and again and again. But in particular, chapter 8 makes contrast between the old covenant and the new covenant. So consider just, here's a chart. it's It's a chart in front of me. I'll do it by words for you. Picture it in your mind, a chart from Hebrews 8 of the difference between old and new. The first covenant and the new covenant. The first covenant is earlier. The new is later. That's significant for Hebrews. There's importance in the timing. For him, later is more significant than earlier. First covenant is on earth. New covenant in heaven where the work is being done. First covenant, copy and shadow. New covenant, original and actual, the substance. First covenant, set up by man, the tent. New covenant, the true tent, set up by God. Earthly tent, true tent, set up by man, set up by God. First covenant, directed through the words of Moses. New covenant, prophesied by David and Jeremiah. Psalm 110, Jeremiah 31. First covenant, enacted and mediated by sinful priests. New covenant, enacted and mediated by the great sinless high priest. First covenant, imperfect, incomplete, ready to vanish away. New covenant, perfect, complete, final, will not end. Unless we get the wrong impression, finally, first covenant, good. He doesn't say bad. He says good. It's a good covenant. It's grace from God. It's a good arrangement in its time and what it points to. And the new covenant is far better, much more excellent. The end of verse 6 says that the reason Christ's new covenant is much more excellent than the old is that it is enacted on better promises. So, what might those promises be? What are the better promises on which the new covenant is enacted? Now, one thing we already saw in chapter 7, I mean, there was language there of a better hope is introduced, a better covenant is first introduced in chapter 7, and that relates to the oath and promise of Psalm 110, verse 4. So Psalm 110, verse 4 is never far from what Hebrews is doing. So if you want to ask about the better promises, what you can say from chapter 7 is, based on Psalm 110, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. We might summarize the betterness, the superiority of the promises as final, final promises. And they're forever promises. I mean, a little shade of meaning there and difference. Let me, let me express that. Final in that God has sworn and will not change his mind. He doesn't put this in place temporarily. He has sworn. His mind won't change. It's final. And forever in that Christ was raised from the dead. 
never to die again with indestructible life, and he will continue forever as a permanent priest, like the old covenant priests could not, which means as more promises roll out of that, it means he always lives to make intercession for us, and he is able to save us to the uttermost, not just for the next week, the next month, till the next sacrifice is needed, till the next big sin. He be able to save to the uttermost. And as we've seen in Hebrews 8, the place of his priesthood is better in heaven, and his offering of himself once for all is better. And next week, we will see better promises in Jeremiah 31. We're talking back here before the service about the I will, I will, I will, I will. It is no accident that he introduces the phrase better promises and quotes Jeremiah 31. They are spectacular promises. And they are not the same old, same old. They are new promises. But let's end this morning with a question. And some of the implications for our lives in the new covenant in contrast with the old. So here's the question I want to finish with, with some implications. How new is the new covenant? Look at verse 7. How new is the new covenant? If that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. Look at the verse. You see that word second? Second. It's a second covenant. You see the word first. Hebrews, here and throughout the letter, like Jesus and Paul and John, speak of two covenants a first and a second, old and new. And when he says new, I think it's really plain. He means new, actually new, not an update, not an expansion, not an appendix, not a renovation, new. There was old, now there's new. There was first, now there's second. And in enacting a new covenant through his death on the cross, as we'll see in chapter 9, the old is brought gloriously to an end. It's God-appointed consummation. This contrast between old covenant and new is an outworking of what we saw two weeks ago in chapter 7. I'm going to take you to one spot in chapter 7 I want to make sure you don't miss. This is chapter 7, verses 11 to 12. If you change the priestly order, you change the whole covenant. That is what chapter 7, verses 11 to 12 teaches. It's not that the covenant enacts the priests, but the priests enact the covenant. Look at verses 11 to 12, chapter 7. Now, if perfection completion, redemptive historical completion here, had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it, under the priesthood, 
the people received the law. What further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than the one named after the order of Aaron? Four, when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. Many Christians do not tend to think this way. We tend to think the covenant is foundational, and you can put priests on and off the top, put various cultic aspects on and off the top, civil aspects on and off the top. You got this moral thing at the bottom doesn't change. Verse 11 says that under the priesthood, the people received the law covenant through Moses. In other words, the priesthood is not founded on the law. The law is founded on the priesthood. And now, in Christ, there has been a change in the priesthood. A priest of a new order has arisen. And verse 12 says, when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law covenant as well. I emphasize it to say this. Brothers and sisters, know your covenant. Cherish our new covenant. In Christ, we are under a new covenant. Not renewed, not tweaked, not updated, not expanded. New. It's another covenant. Another priest has arisen, and with him a new covenant. There was a first. This is a second. There was an old. This is the new. Chapter 7, verse 18 said, the old has been set aside. In chapter 10, verse 9, we'll say that Jesus does away with the first in order to establish the second. And as we'll see next week in verse 13, at the end of chapter 8, Jeremiah, in prophesying of a new covenant, says Hebrews, has made the old one obsolete. Obsolete. The language, it, it must stand in some sense. Obsolete. If there is no sense in our theology in which obsolete can stand, then we have a problem. So, brothers and sisters, the new covenant is such a superior covenant. It is not the same old covenant, newly enhanced, improved, renovated, and expanded. It is new. And you cannot do justice to the argument of Hebrews if our covenant is not new. So let me close in with three implications for us living under this new covenant. What are some of the aspects of what it might mean to live under the new covenant in distinction from the old? First, we read the Bible as New Covenant Christians, which means we distinguish between the Old Covenant as our Scripture and as our covenant. All the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, is our precious Scripture. But the Old Covenant is not our covenant. 
Our spiritual heritage, yes. Our scripture, yes. And it is critical for our understanding and our appreciating our new covenant. But the old covenant's not our covenant. Ours is the new, enacted and mediated by Jesus Christ, our covenant head. And so every Sunday at the commission, we repeat his words, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded, Jesus says in the Great Commission. We read the Bible in the New Covenant as Christians who take the commands of Christ and His apostles as commands to us in our covenant in a way that we do not directly apply the commands of Moses, say, to those under the Old Covenant. In Christ, we love the Old Testament and its types and its prophecies and its foreshadowings and its hints because they help us better understand and appreciate the antitypes and the fulfillments and the substance we now have in Christ. Second, we pray as New Covenant Christians. This is, this is so amazing. We spent some time talking about this in the uh, Cities Institute yesterday morning. We pray to a heavenly Father as Jesus taught us. And we pray in Jesus' name. And we pray as those indwelt by the Spirit of Christ who helps us in our weakness. For we do not know how to pray as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us in longings too deep for words. What a glory it is to pray as a Christian. Don't throw away Father at the beginning of your prayer and in Jesus' name at the end of the prayer as meaningless phrases. They are precious beyond words. And it's precious beyond words to be able to speak to the living God in any given moment. How unspeakably great to have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens that we might with confidence draw near to the throne of grace and receive mercy and find grace in our time of need. Finally then, we belong to the body of Christ as New Covenant Christians. We are not in the New Covenant alone. We have fellows. And so, very practically, local church membership matters. The fellows and fellas matter. Brothers and sisters in Christ matter. It's not an alone covenant. And we covenant very practically with each other in particular times and places, in local churches. And we do, we do so as an extension of the by faith new covenant in Christ to be the church to each other in this time and place. Which means that of necessity, we establish certain parameters for our membership in this church. Our formal, our formal fellowship in this particular local church requires what we call a credible profession of faith for baptism 
and for church membership. And we realize and we own that these are exclusionary terms. Now, they're not excluding based on identity. We're not excluding because of ethnicity. We're excluding because of a lack of ability, a lack of meeting a condition. That's a different kind of exclusion. We exclude adults and children whose profession is not yet credible or who are not yet able to profess faith. That not yet is important because the arms are wide open. And we have established these terms in part with other reasons as well, including New Testament commands, because we think this best corresponds to the reality of the new covenant in contrast with the old, as we've seen in Hebrews 8. The old covenant at its core was ethnic and tribal. There were provisions for proselytes. But by and large, the covenant members were born into the covenant. The locus of the covenant was a particular ethnicity. And so applying the rite of initiation, circumcision, at physical birth was fitting in the old covenant. But now Christ has come and he brought an end to the old with its ethnic and bodily focus. The new covenant is not tribal and ethnically centered. Jew is an ethnicity. Christian is not. And we as Christians are under a new covenant. Today, the covenant locus is those who have experienced new birth. And so, in this locality, we give effort to make our church membership, as best we can, more proximate to God's new covenant people rather than less. Now, we sure hope, and we mean to make sure on this, that being born into a Christian family is a priceless grace, inestimable. To be near to the life-giving, life-sustaining Word, to be cared for by parents who have the Holy Spirit, to be part of a larger church community like this. And in accordance with the terms of the New Covenant, we do not presume that birth into a Christian family means eventual new birth. We do not believe that physical birth into a Christian family is the proper occasion for baptism, as we'll do next Sunday, or church membership, but rather new birth by the Spirit. And so we want our church membership to be as similar to new covenant reality as we can reasonably and perfectly discern, which means baptizing and receiving new members based on a credible profession of faith in Jesus, as we'll do next Sunday. And next Sunday, at the very heart of the new covenant, according to Jeremiah, we'll see, is personally knowing God. And so at City's Church, in light of Hebrews 8, for belonging to this body, we confirm the knowledge of God in Christ in view of a credible profession, which is also what we call for and nurture 
at this table. The glory of Hebrews 8 and the glory of the new covenant is that we can say right now, we have such a high priest. We have the once for all sacrifice finished. That's not only a prayer, it's not a hope, it's not a longing for something that will come. It is true right now. We have such a high priest. And what did our high priest say the night before he died? We rehearse it here every Sunday. This cup, Jesus said, is poured out for you as the new covenant in my blood. We do not only have him now as our great high priest, but he has offered himself and shed his own blood to enact and welcome us into his new covenant. And so this is a meal first and foremost for the members of our church. But if you're here with us this morning and you would say, I've experienced a new birth, I profess faith in Jesus, I claim him as my high priest, I claim his once for all sacrifice, his blood by faith into the new covenant, we would invite you to eat with us. Our pastors will come, we'll take and retain the elements and eat together. His body is the true bread. Let us serve you.